Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Translations for a Dead Sea by Corey Ferenkoff. Corey Ferenkoff is a writer of strange speculative fiction, living on Cape Cod with his wife, Gabrielle, and their tiny dog, Uli. He works as a librarian focused on spreading the good word of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird fiction. He is also a member of the Blue Marble Librarians, which is a New England-based group of librarians focused on climate change education and helping other libraries run environmental programs. He is also an active member of Horror Writers of America. Find him on Twitter at Corey Ferenkoff. That's C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R-E-N-K. OPF. Let's jump in. Laura struggled to hold a half dozen nails between her lips. She'd found the hammer under the sink, along with several rudimentary tools her father had used for cabin maintenance. He had never been very handy. She used her knee to balance the plywood, galvanized steel chilling her tongue. Once the wood was aligned over the first window facing the sea, she leaned a shoulder onto the salt-worn surface, pressing it in place as she drove a nail into the casement. The hammer clatter reverberated in light fixtures and summer screens, a metallic chittering not dissimilar to cicadas. She repeated the process until the graying wood was tacked in place. The next board waited beneath the deck. Her father had cut each to the exact dimensions of corresponding windows, eight in all. The only window he left unadorned was the leaky, western-facing skylight. Even though the roof wasn't steep, her father hated ladders, so it was left bare to view every winter snow and swelling nor'easter. The cabin was only meant for three-season habitation, the insulation thin. Everyone in the area boarded up for winter to keep out storm winds and the freezing spittle rising off the ocean. Isn't it a little early to be putting up the boards? Ray asked from behind her. Ray was in his early 40s, a thick brown beard covering his face, eyes the color of the sea, wardrobe composed of nothing but flannel. Definitely not, Laura replied, words struggling around the nails. I'd say we have at least a month of good weather ahead. Won't you miss the view? Laura didn't know how to answer honestly, so she lied. "Uh, It'll help me concentrate when I'm translating. If I spend too much time looking at the water, I'm going to get nothing done. How is the riding going? Ray asked, moving to her side, steadying the plywood with a calloused hand. Ray lived in one of the large, renovated ranches across the street. He worked as a maintenance man for the stretch of cabins crowding the road, for summer people incapable of fixing toilets or hooking up propane tanks. They'd known each other for years, only growing close after his wife passed, leaving him with their twin daughters in the ever-encroaching sea. It's going, Laura replied. A few more weeks and I'll be pretty close to the end. Your dad would have been proud, finishing it up for him like that, Ray said as Laura hammered another nail. She slipped, aim off, spilling a cascade of galvanized steel across the deck from her tool belt. Laura swore as the two bent to retrieve the sharpened metal. She'd heard too many horror stories of thin-soled sneakers and lockjaw to leave the nails for long. Who's to say? I don't think he even knew if it should be finished, Laura said once the stray nails were gathered. Ray looked at Laura askew, then shrugged, going back to holding the wood. Well, I'm sure he would be, 
Ray said. Her father's cottage was identical to the 15 other white clabbered cottages strung along the road in North Truro, one of the towns farthest out on the Atlantic-wrapped peninsula. Neighboring roads repeatedly washed out with sand, blacktop giving way to soft shoulders, desert-like. Sparse forests of scrub pine pressed up to the dunes, the scent of sap always on the air. Each building was a single story, turquoise shutters framed windows, chimneys divided roof lines. Over their shoulders was Cape Cod Bay, a thin stretch of beach on the opposite side of a concrete seawall. When storms rolled in, roiling waves kicked about front steps, the buildings more aquatic than terrestrial. In October, most were abandoned, the seasonal economy come and gone for the year. Ray said only eccentric stuck around. Laura welcomed the epithet. She had a goat tattoo on her collarbone, had given up dyeing the gray out of her bangs. She used to stitch patches of band names to leather jackets, fixing studs to shoulders. She was getting too old for that, though, she told herself. Laura had lost her previous lease in Boston when she could no longer afford the rising rent. It was hard to afford anything in the city when you were single, and after an unpleasant divorce in her late 20s, owning her own place always seemed like a distant daydream. The cottage was her only option, the mortgage already paid. All she had to worry about were taxes and insurance. After the prolonged pandemic, her job, like many, had cut hours and gone remote. The cottage got decent Wi-Fi. It was enough to continue her graphic design work, sketching logos for organic juice shacks, crafting trifolds for some corporation's overpriced healthcare package. Her job didn't really matter anymore. It paid the bills, kept the heat on, provided enough for takeout twice a week, but little else. It was her nightly task that propelled her days. Her father, an armchair academic after a lifetime of marine biology, had left behind a poetic text he believed held the secret to many things. He had believed the words could provide hope, a tipping point, some great revelation and unveiling. But he also believed the inverse, possibly one of the reasons he hadn't made it through the sheets of paper now piled on Laura's writing desk. With the boards up, her view was gone, the ocean curtained by plywood the desk lit only by the warm glow slipping beneath the lampshade. Now the windows only peered at the backside of graying boards, several dark knots like wide eyes gazing back at her while she wrote, fingers tracking through dictionaries, unheard voices muttering in her ear. She hadn't wanted to cover the class, but she didn't have many choices. They'd get in if she didn't provide a barricade. From the noises she had heard, Her sunless rooms were a small price to pay to sequester her from what came in the night. Laura had written a pros and cons list for finishing the translation of her father's found poem. Cons. There are still a few trees. Corey and Mark. Diane. Russell and Tarane. Cashel, Daria, Ralph, Gabrielle. Art's thriving. There's still guitars, concerts every weekend. All those retired ladies at the Conservation Trust. The girls. Ray. Pros. There are only a few trees. Most people disappoint me. Most people don't care about other people or animals or plants. Especially not plants. Colony collapse disorder. Rising ocean temps. The sixth extinction. Death hornets. 
favorite Indian restaurant closed. Laura's father, while being good with words, had never been the best translator. Hence the unfinished manuscript and the age-muddled line he believed could be understood in one of two ways. Once rewritten, all will be calm and well. Or, once rewritten, none shall remember calm that well. Laura looked at it as a 50-50 chance. Pleasant improvements or vague unpleasantries? She didn't know the scale, what extent of healing or joy or despair could come from the fractured lines. The way things were going, those were decent odds. Speeding up the apocalypse wasn't a great option, but continuing on the same trajectory would lead to blight, emptiness, and very little potable water. Laura wasn't very good with knives or machetes, so defending the only clean waterhole for miles seemed like a grim prospect. She'd read the emergency reports, the UN's 2029 predictions and warnings. Local governments were already talking about placing water restrictions on communities, about storing surplus runoff in newly constructed holding tanks isolated from the public. It was never too early to think about where your next drink might come from, her father had always said. The thought was never far from her mind. Her father had bought the crumbling papyrus from an indoor flea market in Maine. He'd found it nestled in a poster tube between a taxidermied armadillo and a glass case containing antique pearl-handled revolvers. It was in Greek, the language of his great-great-grandfather. Laura had sprung for the Rosetta Stone app for the two of them, promising they'd learn in tandem. It was a point of bonding. He hadn't been doing well since her mother passed, and the daily lessons gave them an easy entry point for conversation. Once she became fluent, her father had promised he'd bring her to Athens. They had been at the translation for four years, moving between a pile of dictionaries and the app, before lung cancer got him. Now it was up to her to figure out the words left behind. Once dusk had settled, a resonant thud quivered through the plywood. Laura's eyes left the half-composed paper, drifting to the hammer she'd left on the table by the door. The door itself was the only point of entry to the cabin. She couldn't board it up and still make it to the store when she needed eggs and milk and basic human contact. She had to hope the new twin deadbolts Ray had installed would hold. It had been a strange request to make, needing two, but Ray seemed to understand the fears of a woman living alone. There was also the unprotected skylight, but the thing... Things? Outside seemed to have no skill in climbing, so Laura pushed the second point of entry from her mind. It would have been even weirder to ask Ray to install another latch up there, or some heavy-duty screen, though she knew he'd be more than happy to do it for her. Ray seemed more than happy to do most things for Laura, and that made her glad. After her divorce and five years of on-again, off-again online dating, she had begun to wonder if there were any decent guys left out there. Decent was only one of many words Laura could think of to describe Ray. Another thud snaked through the boards, followed by the sound of claws dragging along their surface. Something circumnavigated the outside of the cottage, slender fingertips mapping the boards between her life and theirs. She was still trying to figure out if there was more than one. A flock? A gathering? A parliament? Laura didn't know. She only caught glints that first night before she put up the boards, 
only the teeth stayed with her, the sight of moonlight catching on enamel. Either each night they grew more determined at forcing their way in, or there were more of them. More claws scraping at boards. More feet, flippers, tails, scuffling along the deck. Whenever she made progress on the translation, the clamoring grew worse, as if each new word called to them more persistently. The real problem was whether they were the hero or the villain of the story. Had they come to stop her from finishing the manuscript? Halting her from destroying the world? Saving the human race from an endless dark horizon? Or were they something else entirely? Her father's field of study had been mollusks. They're nature's healers, he'd once said to Laura over Thai food, a dinner date of broken Greek underway. Did you know that one oyster can filter 50 gallons of water a day? We've been trying to find a way to use them to clean up waste in the bay. I didn't know that, Laura replied, though she had. It was her father's favorite factoid about his work, most of which was too jargon-heavy for her to follow. But the oyster she understood. The oysters were one of the reasons her father had fallen so hard into the translation. Their shells were growing thin. Ocean acidification ate away at them slowly year after year. If the trend continued, they would eventually become translucent, like pebble ghosts scattered across the floor of the bay. Then, a year or two after that, they'd be dead. So you want to save the world for oysters? Laura asked him one night as he hunched over his papers, lamp bleeding green through its banker's shade. What's good for oysters is good for fish, is good for gulls, is good for us. It's all connected. I think I'm going to blame vandals, Laura said as Ray examined the shreds of plywood heaped beneath the bayside windows, a harsh tear dividing the top of the wood from the bottom. Wind was heavy off the water, a salt sting in the air, their skin peppered by sand. A tumbleweed of a hydrangea head rolled into the dunes, the once blue bloom now decaying brown. Ray picked up the larger half of the plywood, fingers running along the gashed surface. Vandals, he asked. Would have thought me and the girls would have heard something. I guess the ocean's been pretty rough lately. Hard to hear anything over all those waves. Yeah, let's go with vandals. Who else would do this? Laura knew very well who would do this. Or vaguely well. Or just vaguely. She hated lying to Ray, but didn't know how else to explain her current circumstances. Poetry summoning potential demons and all. If the vandal was a tiger, maybe, but we don't have many of them out here, Ray replied. I chased off a pack of coyotes a few weeks back, but nothing bigger than those guys. So, if it wasn't vandals or tigers or coyotes, what would you put your money on? Laura helped him slide a new piece of wood from the back of his truck, hoping that Ray might know more than he was letting on. Have you pissed anyone off lately? I haven't talked to anyone besides you and the girls and a few people at the grocery store in the last month. I might have pissed off one of those retired bagging ladies who's never careful with my eggs, but otherwise, nope. Do you have a gun? Ray asked. Laura almost dropped her into the plywood. Do you think I need one? Whatever ripped this guy down, he said, gesturing toward the scrapwood, is big. Biggish, at least. 
people in the Outer Cape get eccentric sometimes. Who knows if someone bought an exotic pet and it's been getting out at night. You know, real Tiger King shit. That's the only thing I can think of. Would you like a gun? Uh, On loan, of course. Can you legally give me a gun? Don't worry. Cops aren't going to come around to bother you. In the off-season, they're on call, mostly. And if you shoot something, I'll come running and say I did it. Problem solved. It's not like I'm going to miss a gunshot in the middle of the night. Is it safe? Of course. Do you think I'd keep guns in the house around the girls otherwise? Well, if that's the case, yes, I'd very much like a gun. It's all yours. You sure there's nothing else to tell? Ray said, pointing to the wood. I really can't imagine sleeping through all this. Earplugs do wonders, Laura replied, unable to meet Ray's eyes. Pretty sure he'd never glimpsed what slipped from the sea nightly. Later that night, Laura lay next to Ray beneath the covers of his queen-sized bed, staring out toward her cottage through the open window, waiting for inarticulate shadows to swarm her doorway. She hadn't left her translation inside. She knew better. It rested in her backpack by the bedroom door. A copy of the first page lay on her writing desk back in the cabin, the lore hopefully singing to those amorphous shapes slouching from the sea. The night was still early, the girls having gone to sleep after an impromptu ping-pong tournament with Laura. They'd fallen into the custom of batting the hollow ball back and forth most evenings, something to unwind after a long day of school, for the girls, and dread for Laura. Somehow, Laura and Ray managed to keep their sex quiet, never waking his daughters, for which she was thankful. Ray's work-toned body was slick with sweat beside hers, one damp arm slung around her waist as he snored into their pillows. He had fallen asleep quick. He'd been rebuilding a neighbor's deck all week. She didn't fault him. It was just nice to not be alone for a few hours, to hear someone else's breath besides her own. Laura's mind tracked to her pros and cons list. All that would be lost if she were wrong. Ray's name down there at the bottom. The girls. She always wrestled with the same issue before sleep. It was only after dark she doubted her purpose, fearful of mistakes, of losing those she loved. But those she loved would be lost anyway, just on a later date when tides had risen and cannibalism wasn't so frowned upon. Laura thought of the sections as cantos. She'd been obsessed with Dante's Inferno when she was an undergrad, and always liked to think of section breaks in poetry as such. She knew that wasn't accurate, but who was there to correct her? Ray wasn't the reading type, and the girls hated anything that resembled homework. According to Laura's calculations, she was on Canto 22 of 30. It went like so. By the water I have written, several days have passed. They swim far out, farther than I might swim. I don't swim. I fear what I see on the surface. I fear what lies below. If there is no name, it doesn't exist. I fear I will find the words to describe it. To call it into life, plucked from my head, dropped at my feet, writhing limbs and teeth. I'm often tempted to lay down my pen to forfeit these lines, but it is also these lines that keep them in the water, but it is also these lines that call them ashore.
Laura kept the gun within reach. She left the hammer by the door. She'd seen many horror movies. She knew to tuck plenty of weapons away. A crowbar by her bedside, the tire iron from her trunk beneath the pull-out couch, a scaling knife behind the television. Two steps and she could be at any hiding place. She wasn't sure most of the objects would do much against what she'd seen through the cracked plywood, but it was better than nothing. The night she had spent in Ray's bed, the creatures had left her cabin alone, as if they knew she wasn't inside, as if they knew she wasn't dragging pencil across paper, thumbing through dictionaries for difficult adjectives. Was it the words that called to them or the work that led to the words? Laura hated not knowing, hated the uncertainty of every aspect of her life, both environmentally and romantically speaking. She didn't know if Ray saw her as anything more than a fun hookup, if he imagined they had a future together, if he'd willingly do all the macheteing to keep their joint water supply safe. She was trying to work up the nerve to ask, but the timing didn't seem right. Nothing really seemed right anymore. Three days later, the moon hung nearly extinguished above Laura's cabin, a pale sliver in the overshadowed sky. It cast enough light to make out the teeth, the slap of gums, a tongue tasting the air as if premeditating its next meal. The thing, things, had pulled down one of the boards, wrenching the nails from their tired hold. The creature lingered for a moment before moving to the next window. Talon thin fingers scrambling at the boards as if it were blind, as if some other sense guided it to her home. It gave her comfort to think the creatures weren't intelligent. They had the opening, the glass right before them, her soft skin just beyond that. But instead, they moved to the next window, repeating the previous process. Laura promised herself she wouldn't shoot until they broke through, until she could smell their breath feel the heat on her neck. If she shot now, she'd have to explain the thing's corpse to Ray, and the police, and every gawker who swarmed the cottage once a photo landed online. If that was the case, she'd have to confess what she was doing, and someone more knowledgeable would take it out of her hands. Laura didn't want that. The translations were the only thing that made her feel close to her father anymore, the only thing that gave her life purpose. Designing kale chip flyers for a day job certainly wasn't cutting it. As Laura dropped to the next line of text, which she roughly translated as, There will be joy once collapse. Different joy, but joy nonetheless. She felt as if her father's hand pressed her shoulder, cold fingers gripping her collarbone. His negative image reflected in the glass, his thin face and beard tinted gray, translucent. Laura reached her free hand up to place it on his, but there was only goose flesh coursing down her neck, the call of the wind rushing outside, the stomp and drag of the creature's movements across the deck. His face slipped from the glass, dissolving back into the writhing night beyond, back into her insomnia-addled memory. At some point after midnight, Laura heard a splash, something dropping back into the ocean. She had put her pin down moments before and retreated to the mattress, pulling the blankets up around her ears. She prayed sleep would come. There were only three more pages to translate. Two more cantos. 
It wouldn't be long until she knew which version of her father's predictions was true. Tigers again? Ray asked. It was the fourth time he'd helped rehang the plywood. It was December. The cape was quiet and gray, the sky low. Beach grass freezing in the dunes, their brittle skin snapping like tin bells on windy mornings. I think of them as cougars, but that's just me. Tigers are expensive. Cougars are the value point, big cat, Laura replied, nails under her tongue. Don't you think you should winterize a place? Move somewhere inland? Maybe the tigers will leave you alone. Ray had offered to call the police, or animal control, several times. Each time, Laura refused. She couldn't risk interruption to her work, no more than she already added with her visits with him and the girls. She'd started to hear her father's voice, reading over the lines, suggesting changes. They were close. Another few days and the oysters wouldn't become living ghosts, another name relegated to the endangered species list. That's not going to help, Laura said. You could always stay with me, Ray replied, looking back towards his home. The girls would love that. If she said yes, she knew she'd never finish the translation. I'm fine here, for now anyway. Who knows what the future holds? For now, if we fix the windows, that should be enough. The pattern's worked so far. I just need another week, tops, uh, another week. Another week for what? You want to tell me what's going on? Laura bit her lip. It's nothing. Just another day or so and I'm done with Dad's old translation, that travelogue from the Greek monk I told you about. It's mostly recountings of wildlife, lots of utopic scenery and descriptions of tropical fruit. Ray nodded uncertainly, as if her words had slipped past him too fast to be believed. And what does that have to do with your little night visitors? Laura froze. They must love poetry? It's in high demand? She tried to laugh off the comment, but the forced mirth died in the air between them. I see, Ray replied, eyes drifting back towards his house where the girls were playing basketball in the side yard. He began backing away, moving towards the road. He didn't offer to hold the plywood like usual, leaving Laura to use her knee and shoulders. She thought about calling after him, explaining everything, but she didn't want Ray to become a greater deterrent one of those halting forces, a potential casualty. But she also didn't want to drive him away, swept out of her life by a torrent of unhinged speculation. Ray paused before he crossed the street. Are you still planning on joining us for dinner tonight? He called her. We're doing lasagna. If I can get enough work done, Laura said, a spark of hope floating in her chest. Maybe everything really could be healed. Happy endings not solely relegated to fiction. Door will be open. Just come over around six if you can. The girls will miss you if you skip out. Laura had found her father, weeks after the diagnosis, crying before the aquarium in his living room, a holdover from lab days. The bottom was cluttered with mollusks, oysters and clams, Mussels adhered to pieces of driftwood in the corner. Streams of green kelp drifted in the artificial current. The buzz of the filter burbled over his sobs. His forehead was pressed against the glass when Laura pulled up a chair. We're 
Definitely not going to make it to Greece, he said. We can still go. There's plenty of... Not if I'm going to finish the poem. I thought you weren't sure whether that was the right move. I need to leave something behind. Something that will help. Otherwise, it's all been a waste. Laura's hand moved to her father's shoulder, rubbing circles into the fabric of his shirt. You did plenty of good, Dad. Think of the bay cleanup, or the dove key rehab, or the plover monitoring sites. There's quite a list. That's not enough, he replied. Is there ever enough? she asked. I'd hope so. They remained seated in the dim light of his living room, listening to the burble of the fish tank, observing the subtle movements of the mollusks, her father's entire life's work condensed to a single 50-gallon tank and a stack of pages. Laura hadn't left the lights on, certainly hadn't left the door unlocked, not with the completed manuscript on the deck, those final lines ready for recitation. But the cottage was wide open, light bleeding through the skylight and the singular window whose boards had been partially sheared away in the night, the things having left before shattering the glass, only tearing the screen to tatters. It was the closest they'd come to getting in. Laura had a half dozen donuts clutched in one hand, a bottle of hand-pressed grapefruit juice in the other. She figured she deserved a treat before the end, or the beginning, whatever came after her reading by the water. The manuscript was exact in its instruction. These words must be spoken in sight of the sea, over waves, carried on tides, washing low to all ears. Did oysters have ears? She wondered as she wrote, a skip of joy in her throat. That joy deflated as she hesitantly opened the cottage door, holding the donuts before her like a shaking, gluten-heavy shield. She wished she had the gun, or the hammer, or the knife, anything beyond a box of cheap baked goods. Ray sat on the couch, manuscript pages stacked neatly beside him, the last left in his hand as his eyes traced the remaining words. How'd you get in? she asked, putting down the donuts on her small dining table. He raised a key ring from his lap without looking up from the page. You gave me the spares when I installed the locks, remember? That tracks, but why are you here? It's not like the pages call to you like they call to them, she replied. Ray lifted a small shoulder bag with a patch depicting a goat-headed god in the name of a metal band sewn to the fabric. You left this last night. Laura hadn't been able to resist the lasagna. Can you just put those down? I worked really hard on them and I can totally explain what they all mean and... I don't know if there's much to explain. The text is pretty straightforward on our options, Ray said, finally looking up, eyes red as if he'd been crying moments ago. Are you actually going to read this? Have you thought about what it might mean for my girls if it's real? What it means for you and me? If I don't read that, your daughters are going to be murdering neighbors for a bottle of water. Do you really want to be looking over your shoulder the rest of your life, waiting for someone to do the same to them? There's no more ping pong in the apocalypse, no sleepovers, no love. That's what's ahead. You don't know that, Ray replied, hand slowly moving through his beard. Over her shoulder, the sun had begun to set, the shortest day of the year only a week away. 
Winter's chill rushed through the open door, the lap of the sea failing to soothe the tension. Some people don't believe science, but I'm not one of them. Neither was my father, Laura said. There's always hope, always other options. Your father was real big on hope. This was the last thing he wanted. Laura didn't know how true that was, but the words came with confidence. She had to do this for him, after that night by the fish tank. Before Ray could reply, the sound of something sloshing out of the water crept through the open door, wet and bulky, shifting its weight through the sand. Laura swore, rushing back to the door and slamming it shut, turning the twin deadbolts in place. Ray and Laura held each other's gaze from across the room before their eyes drifted to the unboarded window. A shadowed figure stood there, dripping seaweed from its massive frame. Laura didn't really know what she was looking at. The thing's body was amorphous and many-limbed, barnacle-crusted, its head too high to view through the small opening. Not tigers, Ray said, eyes wide. Not tigers, Laura replied. Do you still have that gun? What? Like I'd throw it in the ocean or something with this thing hanging around? She said, hurrying to the small table beside her bed, unearthing the revolver from within. So, I'm going to shoot it and we're going to run back to get the girls. We'll get out of here and go read that poem. That will fix things, right? Ray asked, gesturing for Laura to give him the gun. You want to read it together? She asked, brain snagging on the implications as she handed over the weapon. Sure. I wouldn't let you do it alone. I... The sounds of something else sliding across the deck cut him off. There were a second and third body moving over the boards, others dragging their skin over the cement seawall, pressing through beach sand as they scaled the incline. From the noise, it was hard to pinpoint an exact number. It was safe to say many, all drawn to the final iteration of the poem, far more than eight bullets in the revolver could handle. What do we do? Ray asked, eyes traveling from one boarded window to the next. We wait. This happens every night. When the sun comes up, they usually just go away. They're kind of dumb, if I'm being honest. But what if they're not dumb this time? What if they get in? Ray said, pointing to the only unobscured pane of glass, the seaweed-wrapped creature outside, pawing at the portal. Then we go back to your first plan and hope they can't run fast, Laura replied, retrieving the knife she'd stashed behind the television. Ray nodded moving to stand next to Laura before the window. The last gasps of sunlight sank into the sea, casting a final orange blear across the creature's waterlogged skin. Then the evening shadows were all-consuming, everything through the slim portal fading to grayscale. Laura could smell the sweat wicking off of Ray, could hear his heartbeat pulse in her ear. She was glad she wasn't alone on her last night in the cabin. She was glad at least one of her questions had been answered. Together, not separate. Now, all that was left was to find out what the poem would do to their world. If the words would tear some rent in the ocean floor and suck down all the sludge and smog, the pollutants and plastics and chemicals that never should have been. Or would it vomit up more and more of the blind creatures who stalked about her home, scraping at the boards, hungry for what hid within. Laura tightened her grip on the knife, leaning into Ray's side as they waited 
for morning to come. It took three hours for the creatures to pull down the boards, leaving only bare glass between Laura and Ray and the gathered horde outside. The light from within made it hard to see much beyond their own reflections. Fangs bled through, and seaweed wrapped limbs. But there were so many bodies pressing against the cabin's walls, it was impossible to separate one silhouette from the next or see the ocean beyond. The single bullet and run plan was looking grimmer with each passing moment as the cabin's frame quaked under pressure. Then a window cracked in the eastern wall, a spider web of fractals creeping through the glass. I'm saying the skylight's her only way out, Laura said, pointing to the ceiling and the water stains ringing the aperture. We've got to push the couch over. I thought you said waiting was the best option, Ray said, nervously chewing his lip, eyes darting from one exposed window to the next. I don't think there have ever been this many. We need to improvise or we're screwed, she said, bending to wrap an arm around the old sofa, pushing it across the hardwood. Ray bent to help as they aligned the furniture with the lowest point of the skylight. The ceilings weren't high, but they needed an added step if they were going to get out. Laura stood it on the back of the couch, Ray steadying her thigh with his free hand. She twisted the knob, opening the skylight to the chill night air. The mechanism was old and rusted, and fought her at every turn as her home continued to shiver under the press of the creature's mass. Eventually, the skylight opened wide enough for their bodies to slip through once Laura pushed the screen out of the way. When I'm out, hand me the pages, she said, pulling herself up. Ray did as he was asked, pushing the gathered poem through the skylight once Laura steadied herself on the roof. Then he followed, revolver tucked into the waistband of his pants, metal cylinders clicking against one another, reminding them of the eight bullets, the eight chances they had to clear a path through the swarm. Swarm was the only way to describe the gathering. Laura looked out over the sea of huddled bodies stretching down the beach as more and more emerged from the ocean. She looked over her shoulder to see if they were approaching Ray's house down the road, but most seemed to orbit her small cabin, never wandering far from her sun-like pull. There's no way, no way we're making it to the girls, Ray said. There's one way, maybe. I'm still not sure, but I don't think we have another option, Laura said sifting through the pages as she climbed to the cabin's peak, the moon's glow barely enough to make out the words written there. We're close enough to the water, and I can clearly see the ocean. The tide can carry these words to whatever ears it wants to. Below, the creatures continued to dismantle the cabin, pulling shingles from the walls, dragging nails from boards, shattering glass. Laura didn't know how much longer the building could remain upright. How long before it pitched over and tossed them into the throng of grasping limbs and gnashing teeth? How long will it take you to read it? Ray asked, hurriedly flipping on the light of his smartphone, aiming the beam over her shoulder so she could see. I don't think that matters anymore. This is either going to work or it isn't. Can't you just tell me it will? I need something to go on. Something, Ray said, words seizing in his throat. His eyes turned to his home and the dim glow filtering through his front windows, his girls somewhere within, possibly unaware of what their father was facing, possibly hiding in fear for what lurked beyond their front porch. Laura didn't want the last thought she left Ray with to be one of despair, so she lied. Oh, 
It's totally going to work. A hundred percent. No doubt in my mind. Just hold that light steady and we'll be fine. As Laura began to read, the creatures gathered below stopped pushing against the cabin, stepping back, tilting their heads towards the sound of her voice. It was as if the words were familiar, as if they were waiting for what came next. Laura didn't know what the final canto would bring, but their stasis gave her hope. The cabin wouldn't collapse after all. Maybe there was still a chance to be the healer her father sought. Maybe the oysters and the fish and the gulls and everyone else weren't doomed. Laura flipped to the next page, the words unspooling from her tongue as if they'd always been waiting there, waiting for the right moment to slip free. That was Translations for a Dead Sea by Corey Ferenkoff. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.